There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Klosky and Dr. Dana Saperstein. According to the uh, American Psychiatric Association, there are 10 personality disorders. How many of those have you treated, Dana? Uh, well, that's a difficult question because I don't treat people with personality disorders. Um, what I d- what kind of therapist are you? Well, I'm a therapist who have probably two thirds of the people I see have had somebody in their life or have someone in their life that uh, has a personality disorder because they wreak havoc in their relationships with other people. So it's not something I'm unfamiliar with. It's just that, from my perspective, there is no treatment available for any type of personality disorder. So I, I was going to go down the list and, and, and mention all 10 of them, but I, I think it would probably be better for you to, to kind of give us your definition of what a personality disorder is in generalities. Okay. Um, there are very distinct characteristics that a person brings to the table that has a personality disorder. Uh, the one that is most hard for people to imagine is that if you have a personality disorder, by definition, you can't know. It's humanly impossible to know that that's what's wrong with you or that that's what you're suffering from. Uh, nobody has ever come to see me with a personality disorder that has said to me, I have one, I need help. Because it, it, when people ask me that question, is it possible I have one, that automatically guarantees that they don't because that means you are introspective enough to be able to see yourself from the outside. Which, which is kind of ironic because when I was doing research on those 10, I, I factored that I had a couple of each, in each category, I had eat something, an element of each one. Well, we all have elements of personality disorders, but that doesn't mean that you have one. I mean, everybody or most people would like to be thought highly of and would like to be... Uh, you know, admired and, and to feel a sense of, uh, you know, competence and all that sort of thing. That's normal narcissism, as opposed to uh, if you had a narcissistic personality disorder, uh, that disorder comes with a lot of, um, uh, comes with a lot of pathology, if I can put it in those terms. So do you know where the term narcissism comes from? Yeah, um, uh Narcissus and Goldman was a book that was um, written by, oh God, Herman Hess, I think. Yeah, but they, but I think Narcissus was a, uh, was the son of a Greek god oh, who right, saw right, his right. reflection and fell in love with it. Right, right. Which makes sense, Yeah. right? Yeah. So, and the other thing that, that surprised me in doing the research on, on this topic was that only 10% of the American population suffers from from one of these 10 personality disorders. You know, I think that that's a gross underestimate. That's what I thought. Um, I think that in the general population, it's more like 20%. And I think that in wealthy communities, it's uh, upwards of 50 to 60% because um, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. But in order to accomplish uh, great things, for lack of a better way of putting it, to reach the top of your game as an athlete or as a entertainer or as a business person. And I'm talking about the stratospheric levels, generally speaking, and politicians, generally speaking, have personality disorders. It doesn't stop you from accomplishing really amazing things, but you don't want to be in a relationship with somebody who has a personality disorder because that's the main area in a person's life that's affected if they have that disorder, regardless of what type. Um, you know, if we if we look at the people that we admire greatly in our in our world, whether they're politicians or actors, actresses, professional athletes, um, uh, all kinds of different people, generally speaking, you have to have a personality disorder to get there. Um, you, you cannot have a conscience that gets in the way if you want to be a 
uh, an accomplished politician, as an example. Yeah, empathy, having empathy for others doesn't help you that way. No, it would, it would actually interfere with your ability to get to the, to the level uh, that you need to in order to become at the very, very top. Um, it, it's especially true in athletics. Um, if you have a conscience, it's really hard to detach yourself from how you're feeling to the point where, uh, depending on the sport that you're in, if it's football, you know, you have to be willing to be violent enough to go out of your way to hurt somebody. And that makes you a really good football player. The ones that we admire the most are the ones that are looked at as being super vicious and, uh, and unstoppable. If you have a conscience, it's really hard to imagine that you would be able to carry yourself through the world that way and not feel bad about, you know, knocking somebody out or, or, or disabling them and, you know, making them so badly hurt that they can't continue their career. But we look at those people as being the most accomplished. Yeah, the, the, more, the more pain and the more shame that you can put on somebody in athletics, the more you get paid and right. the more admiration right. you get. Right. So getting back to your original question, Kim, about what defines a personality disorder, uh, the first thing is that you can't know that you have one or you don't have one. The second thing that's really important to understand is you do not have a sense of self. There is no container inside of you that carries your identity. You, you and I each have like what I call a bowl inside of you that's filled up with Kim and mine's filled up with Dana. There may be some uh, bad feelings we have about ourselves or so on and so forth, but but we are able to look at other people and put ourselves in their shoes. And if you have a personality disorder, it's humanly impossible to look at another person as a person because you don't have a sense of self in order to make that uh, comparison. So that's a really important thing to think about because the, in, the inherent thing that happens is that you also don't have the ability to feel the, the uh, feeling of guilt. People that have personality disorders don't feel guilty about anything. They don't even know what guilt feels like. So um, it's very unusual for a person like that to be able to take any kind of responsibility for themselves and to feel sorry about anything because they're not guilty of anything. Apparently that affects all of our politicians these days. Well, I would say so because why would you want to be in the public light in that way uh, unless you crave power and admiration? Because those are the two, as far as narcissistic personality disorders goes, those are the only commodities that you're interested in is feeling powerful and, feeling, and, and seeing yourself as being admired. Um, and those two things are, are the, f the food that you feed on in order to feel a sense of well-being. So your identity is replaced by a really strong need for um, admiration and power. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through at least the top eight. I, I know the <clears throat> we'll, we'll gloss over the, the bottom two. But I know what everybody's going to say. Just what I said earlier is, oh, I got a little bit of that. But uh, uh -huh. but but again, you need a lot of that yes. <laughs> to and actually you, have the disorder. And the very the very thought that you can recognize it in yourself means that you don't. You don't have, have it, right? Yeah, there you go. So so the first one is antisocial, right? Behavior. Yeah. Well, well, I, I think in context, we probably all know what that is. Yeah, I mean, oh. you're, you're, it's, it's either a sociopath or a psychopath. Those are kind of interchangeable terms. Right. And those are, generally speaking, people that uh, um, have no conscience, and that's the hallmark of their relationship to other people in the world. So they see people as objects to be exploited. Um, if you were to measure the prison population, as an example, you would find that probably... 80% of people that end up in prison have uh, a, a sociopathic or, or a psychopathic personality disorder. So um, most of the habitual criminals, murderers, yes. serial killers, all of those have yeah. that probably common trait. Absolutely. And, and they see people as commodities to be exploited. Um, no conscience. And so naturally everybody in jail is innocent, or so they claim. <laughs> Because, you know, there were, there's always someone else to blame for whatever it is that, uh, um, that they get caught for. Now, this is a disrespectful thing to say, but I would say that the people that end up in prison are the stupid uh, sociopaths. Because the white-collar criminals that usually get away with what they get away with are the smart enough to be able to, to evade the law most of the time. So, so this is going to be a little bit of a one-off, but in, in terms of the pr prison population, and, and we have these re rehabilitation programs, right. restorative programs, 
um, whatever um, the semantic <laughs> word of the day is to that. So if if the majority of the prison population has the sociopathic or, or psychopathic um, tendencies, uh-huh. then how, how are these restorative programs even effective at all? Uh, I know, and I know this is an opinion, not a yes. professional. Well, I mean, look at how most people in jail spend their time. They spend their time making weapons and trying to figure out a way to continue being a criminal despite the fact that they're in jail. And the only thing that slows them down is the threat of punishment. It's not because they feel guilty. It's that they're trying to avoid being further punished for their crimes. And, but they do spend most of their uh, creative and, and uh, uh, other time um, making weapons because um, that gives them that power over the other inmates and that, and that sense of uh, superiority. So I'm not a great fan of spending a ton of money on trying to rehabilitate um, criminals. I think that there are some that learn how to function and become actually more effective as criminals when they uh, leave jail because it's an educational system of a bunch of people that have uh, gotten caught for crimes, but some of them are fairly brilliant in terms of, uh, you know, what they try to get away with. Um, there is a, pop, a center of, you know, a small portion of people that do become rehabilitated. They do feel badly about, maybe badly about what they do, but there's a really big difference between uh, uh, what it looks like to say you're sorry and what it feels like to say you're sorry. And that's a really important distinction, I think, for people to make that uh, if you want to look good, then saying you're sorry can make you look good. But that doesn't mean that you feel sorry. It just means that you're trying to look good to accomplish a purpose. So a lot of criminals apologize to their victims or to the victim's families because they know that that might get them a reduced sentence or somehow uh, um, will serve them in some way. But I don't think that the feeling of sorrow is part of the picture. They haven't fully repented. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a form of manipulation in a way. You know, the, the other types of psychopaths or sociopaths that we come in contact with are, you know, we see these shows on TV where women are seduced by, it's not always women, but, but women are seduced by these incredibly charming men who come into their lives and they fall in love with these men because the men appear to be the answer to their dreams and the next thing you know, their bank account's empty and the man's disappeared. And we scratch our heads and think, oh my God, you know, there must be something really wrong with these women. They got to be really stupid to fall for this. And my response is that's actually not the case because if you have a personality disorder, by nature, your perceptual abilities are heightened in order to be able to take advantage of people in your life. So if you're trying to take advantage of somebody who's lonely, for example, you can morph yourself into whatever it is that that person needs in order to feel the kind of love that they've never experienced before. And it's hard for the person that's being manipulated to feel like it's an act because if you're that good, then you win an Academy Award, as an example. Uh, the actors and actresses, again, gross generalization here, that are the most famous are the ones that have nothing internally to get in the way of them becoming what's on the script. And if they have a really good talent for acting, they actually become what's on the, on the, on the script. And we can't tell the difference when we're watching them on the screen and so we look at them and think, oh, my God, these people, they're the most amazing, uh, talented people that you could ever imagine. Because if you and I went into the acting business, we might be able to be okay. <laughs> but our personalities are always going to interfere because we can't separate ourselves from ourself. But if you don't have a self, then there's nothing to separate yourself from. And so you can, you can be an incredibly masterful actor or actress just don't get into a relationship with somebody like that because they'll train you in for a different model um, very uh, quickly. I was going to say, as we, as we record this episode, that would be the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Yeah, I mean, th- that's a perfect example of two people that are incredibly disturbed, in my opinion, and have no moral compass at all. And they're just attacking each other, you know, to make themselves feel better. Uh, even if you followed a, a minute of that trial, I think any PhD student in psychology could have 20 to 25 different thesis points. Probably so. Coming from either one of those yep. people. You know, the other thing that's important to mention about uh, personality disorders, especially narcissism, is that there's an 80% chance that you're going to have a substance abuse issue that goes along with your personality disorder because um, 
it's a, it's a hard life to live, even though you're not aware of what's wrong with you. Um, the the amount of energy that it takes in order to you know garner uh, the power and the admiration from other people is you know is is pretty consistent because no matter how much you get, it's never enough to fill you up because as soon as it comes in, it goes right out the door. So uh, people turn to substances in order to uh, ease the pain of their of their loneliness and their disconnection, but they're not really aware that that's what they're doing. So the next one's avoidant personality disorder. Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with that one because um, generally speaking, people with personality disorders don't come to therapy. It's very, very rare. Um, so I, I don't know if you have the definition of that one. I, I, I don't have it handy, but I'll look it up. Um, you know, my, my understanding of it is that the person uh, is quite isolated in the way that they live and, uh, you know, avoids contact with other people, thus the name. We'll come back. We'll come back to the avoidant one. Uh, the next one is uh, was kind of a scary one, and, and I know that, that you have a, a big opinion on this, is a borderline personality disorder. Yeah, borderline personality disorder is really scary because... Uh, again, the person doesn't know that that's what they're suffering from. And what you see with somebody who is borderline is that they flip from idealizing you and thinking that you're the greatest thing that's ever lived. And then two seconds later, they can hate you with every fiber in their body and then come after you uh, with a kind of violence and vengeance that's really difficult to understand. So the person is very, very volatile in the way that they live emotionally and really difficult to deal with somebody that has borderline personality disorder. I've actually known people that have been assaulted and um, and really hurt by someone when they love you one second, the next thing they want to punch you in the head. So I think there's probably some confusion in the context of, of borderline personality disorder versus bipolar disorder, one being a personality disorder, one being a medical condition. Right. So is there a difference... Not, in bipolar versus borderline? Oh, there's a gigantic difference. Uh, bipolar disorder is a mood disorder. That's what it's called. And your mood changes from depression to uh, what we call mania. So you can go from being really depressed to being really elated. Uh, some people cycle two or three times a day. Other people cycle weekly. Some people cycle monthly. Um, the length of the cycle um, is very sort of particular to the person, um, but it affects their their mood. It's not an identity thing or a lack of identity thing. It's a genetic disorder, actually, that affects your mood. It's a chemical imbalance. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've even discovered where in the genetic chain uh, bipolar disorder lives. Um, just, to, just to circle back to avoidant, it's uh, it's exactly what you said. It's it, it, people that avoid intimate and social contact with others. Right. I mean, that could be a, a, the definition of a lot of us that are shy. Or, <laughs> or, I was going to say, wait, that's me. Right. But, but we're talking about somebody in, in a really extreme situation where they absolutely cannot tolerate any contact with anybody. With anybody, correct. Right. That's really different than being shy or, or uh, you know, a little hesitant in social situations. Probably not as common as some of the other ones we've already talked about. No, and and, and there would be no way for us to know because if you have an avoiding personality, so you would never know that. Per, you would know that person, right? <laughs> that's right. They would be living in that, a in that, a, that's a shut in in an isolation in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, dependent personality disorder. Uh, dependent personality disorder is uh, kind of an interesting one to think about because your identity is actually based on you fusing with another person and adopting their identity as yours. Um, and uh, that's kind of scary if you think about it, that you really have nothing inside of you other than your uh, experience of the other person. And one of the questions, that, and I was going to ask about dependent personality disorder, but maybe it affects the ones we've talked about already. When does a personality disorder start becoming prevalent in your life? Generally speaking... Uh, it's something that you're born with, but it doesn't show up fully until you go through puberty, generally speaking. Because um, when you go through puberty, your brain develops as much as the rest of your body. So whatever it is that you're kind of uh, 
sitting on shows up. Now, that's not to say that I've worked with some families who have children that show a lack of conscience all the way from the time they're in elementary school and have no kind of respect for authority and uh, are incredibly manipulative and usually can be extremely bright, but of really difficult children. A lot of times they're labeled as having a conduct disorder before uh, they're truly labeled as having a personality disorder because we try to wait until the person goes through puberty before we formally um, diagnose them in this way. Uh, yeah, because I was thinking about dependent um, in, in the de- definition that you had given, and, and it would be odd if going through adolescence that, that you ha- would actually have that. It would seem to me that that would be something later on in life that somehow that your identity didn't uh, you didn't feel that it come came about or you had been searching for this identity and finally found it in somebody else and just lived vicariously through that person the rest of your life. Well, the, I mean, the, the only way for a person with dependent personality disorder to function in the world is to not be aware that that's what's wrong with them. So there wouldn't be True. that kind of introspection that you're describing. <laughs> that would come from the outside, not from I was trying to bring person. realism to yeah. that uh, oh, diagnosis. Sorry, sorry. It's the most common thing that I encounter with people is that it's so hard to believe that you could have something this drastically broken inside of you and not have any awareness that this is what you bring to the table. And what you and I were talking about before we began recording was that that some of these behaviors also cross over into other areas in terms of, you know, whether uh, you may have dependent or, or, or avoidance issues and things like that. There could be other personality trait crossovers that, that go with that as well. Well, I, again, as I mentioned, um, having a personality disorder is like being pregnant. It's an, it's all or no, it's all or nothing. You can't sort of have a personality disorder you either have one or you don't. Now, the severity of it is usually uh, dictated by the the way that you're raised. The presence of it, in my opinion, is genetic. Because I've worked with families where there can be five people that have personality disorders, and one kid who's completely normal um, and doesn't have a disorder, and man, is that person's life chaotic and, and uh, uh, incredibly traumatic. I worked with a family once where there were truly... Three children, four children altogether, but three children that had personality disorders. They were narcissistic. Both parents were narcissistic. And the, the two older brothers believed that it was their grandiose job to teach their younger sister how to be a sexual person. Wow. And that's how they conducted their lives in relationship to their little sister, who didn't have a personality disorder. But she did have to deal with these crazy brothers who... And, and they really believed that it was there. It wasn't something that they made up. They really, in their grandiose way, believed that uh, that this was their particular uh, role in life with their little sister. She, she was lucky enough to miss that trait, but boy, was there hell to pay. Yes, because her sister was vicious. Her sister was what we call a, a, a malignant narcissist, but we'll get there when we get to narcissism. And that's somebody who takes great pleasure in hurting other people on purpose. We talked uh, uh, before we recorded also about histrionic personality disorder and yeah. and defined by you know somebody that wants to be noticed that their self self esteem depends on the approval of others. Which if right. you if you look towards social media, you would think everybody now has histrionic personality disorder. Then uh, you're talking about the influencers. Yeah, the influencers. You know. Well, I would say that they're probably a combination of histrionic, but more more narcissistic because uh, what most of the influencers are looking for is for people to really admire them, not just to get attention, but to get admiration specifically and to feel a sense of power by, by you know, being a big shot and all that stuff. Somebody who's histrionic will get attention just for kind of being hysterical, which is where that word, you know, histrionic comes from. So there, that's somebody that makes a... Uh, Pardon me putting it this way, but makes a shitstorm out of everything. Gotcha. I, I worked with a nurse once who every single shift that we worked together was the busiest day ever, no matter what took place in the in the real world. So there could be three patients on the unit and it was the hardest, worst, most taxing day ever, or there could be 25 patients and it was the same. The reality didn't make any difference for her. Everything was always really hard and really overwhelming and 
She was always walking around huffing and puffing and just kind of hysterical about everything. So that's a definition of somebody that has histrionic traits. Yes. That way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the one that, that, that we've talked about already that needs to go into more detail, which I think that most of us are probably most familiar with, know somebody that's this way, work with somebody that's this way, been in a relationship with somebody that's this way is, is narcissistic personality disorder. Right. Um, that, in my experience, that's the most common one. And that may be because it's the most visible one. Um, there are in my easy for most people to interpret. Right. Although I think that the, the, the term narcissistic is thrown around sometimes, um, uh, in not the most healthy way because not everybody that wants attention and needs to be admired has a personality disorder. But generally speaking, there are three types of, of, uh, three separate categories of being, uh, of having a narcissistic personality. There's the one that we most think about, which is the person that's grandiose in their um, way of living in the world. And what that what matters to that person is that they have tons of admiration and feel a huge sense of power as a result of the admiration. Now, I know I'm going to make a lot of uh, enemies when I say this, but uh, the most prime example in our recent history of somebody um, <laughs> who had a uh, narcissistic personality disorder of this type was Barack Obama, right? He loved the attention that he got and he loved the admiration that he got for being really smart and really charming and really uh, amazing in the way that he lived in the world. And he was in a lot of ways, but you know, when you look sort of deeper into his life uh, before he ran for president, his wife told him that she would in no way support him if he ran for president. She didn't want her children to be subject to the horrible things that happen to children when they're, father's the president, and she didn't want their lives to be any more impacted than they already were by his presence in the political world. And he promised her that he wasn't going to run, but then when he got pressured by the people around him that he stood a chance of actually winning, he got seduced by what that might be like, and so he just did it. And when she found out, at least according to what I've read, she was furious, and it took her a a long time to forgive him, but he, he, he just rationalized it by saying, oh, she'll get over it. It's not that big of a deal. She'll see how important it is and so on and so forth. But if you look at the way that he handled politics when he was in office, anytime there was a fight to fight, he backed away. And the reason he backed away is because he didn't want people being mad at him because that would make him look bad. So when it came, the opportunity came to a port of, uh, to, um, uh, appoint a Supreme Court justice toward the end of his tenure, um, he had the, illegally the right to do that, but as soon as he got resistance, he backed away and allowed the next president to appoint that Supreme Court justice, and that's been a disaster for us liberal-thinking <laughs> people, right? Because then the next person that came along got their choice, and uh, that was a really terrible thing. So Listeners are going, which way does Dana lean? I'm yeah, not no quite kidding. sure here. <laughs> well, and the other thing that's important is that there are a lot of uh, really famous people uh, that live for um, the admiration and the and the power, and you know these are people that have accomplished things that are that are unimaginable. I mean, if you look at Bill Gates as an example, now I don't know him, but everything I've read about him is that he doesn't have the strongest moral compass, right? He was unfaithful to his wife throughout their whole marriage. He went to uh, Jeffrey Epstein's Perv Island, and um, you know I can't fault him for giving. $25 billion to charity. I think that's an incredible thing that he's done and that he's really generous. Uh, if I was going to be the cynical psychologist that I am, I would say that the reason he did it was not because he necessarily cares, but it sure makes him look good. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And the other thing that I've read about him is that when he was conducting his business and was really in charge of growing the company that he built, that he was vicious in terms of the way he treated his competitors and some of the people that even worked for him. Uh, right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Yeah, same thing with Steve Elon Jobs. Elon Musk, Jeff yeah. Bezos, no, all, all these guys. They're not the nicest people, no. but at the same time, you cannot diminish their contribution to our world. No, you can't. Right? I mean, when Jack Nicholson uh, was caught 
uh, with his golf clubs out of the car, beating somebody's car on the freeway. Right. We all laughed because we thought that was hysterical that Jack Nicholson, what a character, you know, what a funny guy. Right. And we gave him a hall pass because he's a super famous, charming person. If I was on the freeway and I was blacking somebody's car with my golf clubs, I don't think people would think I was a funny, clever person. I think I'd go to jail. Well, I also think Jack did that 30 years ago when it wasn't, uh, it was kind of swept under the rug a little bit more right. then. Right. But I, I just want to make sure that it's really clear that the the biggest effect that having a personality disorder has is on your relationships with other people because you objectify other people. People are not people, they're objects. And they either serve you or they don't. And if they serve you, you will be kind to them and you'll be supportive of them. If they don't, then it's the same thing as what you would do if somebody committed mutiny. Off with their head, off the plank, because it's a very black and white way of living in the world. Now, that's a, you know, a part of any personality disorder, but I was talking about the, the grandiose type. Then there is the what I call the victim type of narcissist, somebody who, who actually sees themselves as a victim no matter what the circumstances are in their life. And you wouldn't think that that would be narcissistic, but if you think about the fact that if you're a victim, then nobody is ever able to hold you responsible for anything, especially anything negative. So you're allowed to do whatever you want because the, the, the poor world is against you. And that, you know, you can be the most despicable human, but nobody's allowed to get mad at you because you've had it so bad and things are so hard. And it doesn't really matter what the reality is. But generally speaking, if you're the victim type of narcissist, you don't achieve the kind of fame that you do and fortune that you do if you're the grandiose type. But it's also really powerful, and a lot of times people don't understand that some of the people in their lives that constantly see themselves as being a victim are really truly narcissistic in their orientation toward the world. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really go hand in hand, does yeah, it? it do, but it does if you think about it. Um, and then the, the, the scariest, worst type of narcissist is the malignant. Now, sadly... Um, the most powerful people in the world, generally speaking, are malignant narcissists, and they uh, get a great deal of pleasure in hurting other people on purpose in order to feel a sense of power and admiration. Now, again, we just got through having a president that uh, was the, probably the most visible malignant narcissist that um, we've ever had to encounter. S extremely brilliant, manipulative person, and if you cross him... Uh, you pay dearly, and everybody is still terrified of him, even though he has no power right now uh, in an official sense, because if you cross him, he does everything he can to destroy your life and destroy your career, which is a very powerful use of, uh, uh, you know, your, uh, your influence. And you could see the smile on his face when he would talk about somebody that he was able to harm in some way. Uh, and when he talked about women especially, uh, at first, he, you know, I'll think about all the disrespect that he had when he described his relationship with women, that they were objects that, you know, helped them feel like his penis was gigantic. And, um, you know, you could, you could see the hate oozing from his body whenever he talked about women, because on the deep inside of him, this is speculation, women are what he needs to reinforce his grandiosity. Anything that you need to reinforce your narcissism is something that you hate. So generally speaking, he hates women because he needs them to make sure that he can show off his uh, virility. Um, th the fact that after, you know, a couple of years after the election, he was still hating on his opponent just tells you that, that you know, she shook him up big time in some ways by threatening the fact that he didn't, you know, almost lost the election, that sort of thing. He couldn't come to the current president's uh, inauguration because he would have to acknowledge that he lost, and he still can't acknowledge that he lost. He's still trying to convince everybody that, you know, that uh, the election was stolen from and all this crap, and it's because his ego or his lack of self is so fragile that he just wants to hurt anybody that gets in his way. That makes him a super dangerous person, just like... Uh, Putin and the way that he's living now, he's hurting other people on purpose in order to garner his power and try to take over the world. And, you know, all throughout history, we've had uh, people like that who get great pleasure out of harming others in order to achieve their sense of uh, 
superiority. Yeah, I was I was going to say that probably going back into the history of this world that many of the great leaders absolutely probably had yes. this trait. Uh-huh. Well, as, sadly there's lots of leaders of companies and industries that are incredibly talented and really successful, but man, you get on their bad side and you don't stand a chance of surviving because they'll do everything they can to destroy you. So I want to stay on the the narcissistic piece for for a moment here and not have to circle back to it because I think a lot of people are, are thinking, okay, great. I understand that. Like Kim had said earlier, I have a relationship with somebody like that in my life. I've had a relationship with somebody like that in my life. And I'm talking mm-hmm. not only from an intimate standpoint, but maybe a work standpoint uh-huh. or, or a friend standpoint. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, talk to you know other parents that that um they're co-parenting with a narcissistic parent uh-huh. et cetera, et cetera. Yes. and so the 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 ten thousand or ten million dollar question i guess is is if i'm in a relationship or have to be in a relationship with a narcissist for whatever reason how uh-huh. do i how do i deal with that boy that's a tough one because it depends on how vicious the person is when they don't get their way um, if they're just the garden variety of uh, somebody who, you know, um, wants to be admired and looked at as uh, super important, it's kind of easy to manipulate somebody like that. And I'm sorry as a psychologist to say that that's... Uh, uh, Manipulation's that, okay. That manipulation is okay. But, you know, you have a dog. What do you feed your dog? You feed your dog dog food. You feed your cat cat food. You feed a narcissist admiration and, and, and the illusion of power. And, and that works fairly well, although most people are not willing to do it because they feel like they've been so hurt and manipulated and, and damaged by that relationship. That the they can't place. bring themselves to continue to do that. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I can tell you a semi-humorous story. There was a fellow that I knew a number of years ago, and his family, super wealthy family, probably worth at least $100 million, if not more, both parents extremely narcissistic uh, um not very nice people. He grew up under the the, the um, criticism and judgment of uh, always feeling inadequate and so on and so forth. Um, he became really successful in his own right. Um, but, you know, his parents were quite elderly at the time I met him. And um, his father was already uh, demented to the point where he didn't know anything that was happening around him. But his mom was still in her mid-80s, uh, the queen of the city they lived in. And had a ton of influence and power because, you know, it's, it's not a small thing to have hundreds of millions of dollars at your disposal. Well, he went to a, a, a birthday party that his mom had thrown for herself uh, in another city. So he flew there with his family and um, he was in the elevator with his mom and his mom started going off on him and telling him what a shit he was and what a terrible son he was and how ungrateful he was and on and on and on. And this guy lost control of himself for a minute, and he grabbed his mom. Now, he didn't hurt her, but it's not okay to grab an 85-year-old narcissistic mom in the fit of anger. And so uh, they got into a big fight with each other. And, uh, you know, he left the party with his family and flew home. And his mother uh, communicated to him that she was going to disinherit him and all and on because she didn't let anybody treat him that way or that way and so on and so forth. And he didn't know what to do because he didn't want to um, walk away from hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So I said to him, look, you got a couple of choices. You can either force the issue and your mom will write you off altogether, or you can fly back and apologize to her and tell her how sorry you are for um, losing your temper and being such a bad son. And, you know, I would never say that to anybody in their dealings with a, in quotes, normal person. But somebody who had that kind of personality disorder and that kind of power, you just want to manipulate them into submission. And so, you know, he was able to swallow his pride and go back and, um, uh, you know, and apologize. And his mom, you know, was so happy that he recognized how bad he was and how disrespectful it was and, you know, how, how innocent she was in all of this. And, uh, you know, everything got repaired and he flew home. And uh, the next time I saw him, he said, guess what happened? I said, well, I'm assuming that if you did what we talked about, that you, uh, uh, that you were forgiven and everything was fine. He said, oh, no, there's way more to it than that. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, this morning I just got a check for uh, $8 million. I said, what? 
He said, yeah, I got, I got $2 million for me, $2 million for my wife, $2 million for both of my, each of my sons. My mom sent me $8 million to let me know uh, that all is forgiven. And that's what happened as a result of him being willing to, uh, you know, manipulate her into believing that he was sorry. It was, rep- it was reparations. Yeah, it was reparations. And I said to him, well, that's not really fair. Where's my cut for the strategy that we <laughs> right. came up? Yeah, she got 30% of that. That's right. Million. I said to him, that's not really fair. He said, yeah, it's fair. I pay your bill. That's all, you know. <laughs> so anyway, we joked about it. But, he, you know, he got $8 million for basically eating it. Yeah, uh, yeah I can... Uh, that's a tough pill to swallow, right? Eight million dollars yes. makes that pill much easier to swallow. Well, but of course, and but, I know mo- that m- but most people that have to deal with this don't, they don't have, have that, that eight million dollar check potentially no, coming to them, that right? Is true. And I think you you, vac- you vacillate, right? Versus uh-huh. you know taking the high road or engaging them further in terms of like the word used manipulation, right? Am I just taking the low road and getting just going down the same path that they go? Well, you know, Kim, I, I know I've been joking here a little bit, making light of it. It's not really something to make light of because I'd say at least two-thirds of the people, as I said before, uh, that I see are someone who's been deeply injured by someone who has a personality disorder because it's an incredibly toxic, really uh, abusive relationship. So usually what I do with people is try to help them get to the point where they heal the trauma, which can sometimes take a bit of time. And once you get to a place where you've healed your trauma, and I try to help the person feel sorry for their abuser. Because um, if you can pity somebody who is that broken, then you're not going to take them seriously when they do their stupid, uh, manipulative, hurtful uh, behavior. You're just going to look at them like they are, the pathetic person that they are, and do the best you can to either avoid contact with them or just kind of appease them to the best of your ability. But that can't happen until you've gotten to a place where you can Forgive the person for hurting you so deeply. And, and, and as you know, and as the listeners know, that's how I came to grips with the victimization I had with my father. Right? Because I was thinking about, again, you know, uh, thinking that, you know, he was sorry about it or, or whatever, but it, it really was coming to that that point of, pitying him and feeling sorry for him for the way he had to to live his life that way. Not only whatever it was, the fear that he was having, the narcissism that he was exhibiting and and whatever that dominance was that, that made him feel better or whatever projection that was that he was doing, it was coming to grips myself of, of having that pity for him was the only way that I was, I, I, I don't. It's tough for me to say that I actually forgave him. Uh-huh. I don't know if there's a difference between forgiving and having pity on somebody. Um, well, there has to be a certain amount of forgiveness, maybe not complete, but in order to pity somebody that has hurt you deeply, you have to get past a fair amount of the trauma that they caused you. Yeah, and and I think that's you know I got to that point not not to like you said that hundred percent point of forgiveness but the point of my god you must have lived a miserable life and man i really feel bad for you right the 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 hardest part is that the person that has the disorder really does not recognize anything negative about themselves in any way shape or form it's always overcome by that incredible hunger for uh, admiration and power and uh, an ability to manipulate people in a really really uh successful way so, so my mom said something very telling when, when my dad was on his deathbed. He had probably been unconscious for a week, and, he, and, and his death was imminent within a couple hours. And, and I remember my mom standing over him saying, well, are you going to thank me? And it never really, I, I kept, you know, you're caught up in the moment at, at that point. It never really resonated till later what, you know, what she was trying to get out of him at that time. So she's, she's sitting there with an unconscious husband that she'd been with, you know, for 50, 60 years at, at that point, who is never going to say another word to her. It's going to die in a minute. And she wants him to say, are you going to thank me? Yeah. That was pretty telling. A slight self-centered reaction. Exactly. <laughs> 
or I shouldn't make light, but it's no, no, I mean, it, it's I so mean, crazy. It, you know, when you think back on things like that and, and through the therapy I've had and the hypnosis that I've had, that, that probably is the, the, the catalyst that's helped me heal the trauma that mm-hmm. I, that I suffered. Um, you, you think back on moments like that because you can't make sense of them at, at that time, but then ultimately after you you put it in perspective a little bit more, it's like, oh, it makes total sense now. Right. On that, yeah, it does. So I I don't know if we've 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 <laughs> completely answered the question about, you know, if I work with a narcissist, if I'm in a relationship with a narcissist, if I co-parent with a narcissist. I mean, we we talked about that one example you had about uh, your client that had kind of like, okay, I'll go back. I'll apologize and and had reparations nicely in in the end. But how would the person that doesn't have $8 million check coming to them, how do they they handle it? Well, if you're stuck with the person in a way Mm -hmm. that you're describing, you're stuck with somebody you're co-parenting with and so on and so forth. Yeah, they're not going to go away. No, there's a fair amount of misery that you're just going to have to accept as a part of your life because there is no ideal solution to solving that problem. That's not what the listeners want to hear, Dana. Well, I, I mean, I'll look, I, well, where's a, the magic fairy dust right now? I'm a, I'm a realist and I understand again that um, there are some situations that cannot be helped. Somebody with a personality disorder can't be helped. Now, occasionally people have come here with personality disorders or with a spouse or whatever. And what I try to do is help them get to a place where they stop harming the people in their lives as vigorously and that does take a fair bit of uh, manipulation. But the, the, the answer to the question is that um, if you're stuck with a person, you have to figure out some way of managing them because they really do not have the power, if you think about it. Because if the only thing that you can digest is admiration and power, um, that's a very limited span of emotion. So if you're willing to... Uh, pretend like that person is uh, special and admirable, you're going to diffuse their attention. And it's more likely that you're going to get what you want if a person is full as opposed to them being hungry. Now, I know it's a hard sell because that person has already hurt you deeply and you're scared of them in some ways because you know they're capable of almost anything. But at the same time, if you're stuck with that person, you have to figure out some way of interacting with them and having a reasonable, rational conversation with a person is the worst thing that you can do because all that you're going to do is threaten them by asking them to take the responsibility for themselves. So you have to be willing to be very strategic in the way that you operate in relationship to that person. Which even if you weren't a narcissist would automatically put you on the defensive anyway. Right, right. You know, um, this is an awful thing to say, but what defines our humanness is our ability to feel guilt because that, that means that we have a, a conscience and a sense of self and we can put ourselves in another person's shoes, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if you don't have that, if you're, if you're not equipped with a conscience, you're actually subhuman in some ways because it's very much like an animal, right? Your animals uh, appear to love you your dogs and your cats or whatever, but that's because their impulses are kept under control by your willingness to provide them food and shelter and love and, and kindness. They have short-term memory also. Right. <laughs> but if you think about it, I mean, I, people hate me when I say this, but um, this is terrible. But if you're stuck in the house with your dog, as an example, right, and the world comes to an end and it's just you and your dog and there's no food and... Um, you're super hungry and you're slowly starving to death, it's going to be really hard for you to eat your dog because you'll feel so terrible about that and so bad that this creature that you love and have devoted so much care to now looks like a, a meal to you, right? But if you die, your dog's not going to feel bad about uh, consuming you if you're the only food available. It's a really terrible thing to think about, but your oh, dog... that's a good point, though. But your dog is lives his life or her life based on impulse and based on instinct. And the instinct to survive surpasses just about anything for an animal, especially. So you become the meal. And I don't think your dog's going to feel bad 
that he or she had to eat you because it was the only way for her to survive. And we know this because there are situations in the world where this has actually happened, right? We find somebody who's been dead for a week or two and their dog was stuck with them and, you know, the, hadn't eaten and started eaten, to right. eat them and which is horrible, but you would really have a hard time doing the same thing because your conscience would make you feel so bad about doing that, that, you know, some people would actually starve soon, sooner than eat their, eat their pet, but your dog would not starve so much for man's best friend. Right. Well, and again, I'm not trying to paint a bad picture. It's the difference between having a conscience and the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. Your dog doesn't know how to do that. Your dog knows that you're a source of comfort and uh, security and, and all that stuff. But if you remove that, your dog's going to revert back to being the animal that he or she is. And it's very much true with people that have personality disorders. They don't have a conscience. They don't have a sense of self. Everything is either uh, security or a threat. And because they're constantly starving for admiration and power, you have to be willing to feed them in order to calm them down to the point where they're not going to hurt you. Otherwise, they're going to hurt you, period. Right. It's, I mean, it's the same thing as just defending yourself, right? Yes. From being, from being harmed, whether that's somebody that has a gun on you uh -huh. or pulls a knife on you. Yeah. It's the same thing. You want to get out of harm's way and you're going to do anything that you can to get out of harm's way, right? Well, the worst thing that I've told people to avoid at all costs is to say to the person, as an example, well, my therapist tells me that you're a narcissist. <laughs> right? Because if you tell somebody that they have a personality disorder, they're going to come back swinging at you like you can't imagine because it's so contrary to the way they see themselves and how they defend themselves against um, any sort of a threat. I'm sure that threat's been thrown out there many times. Right. So I, I can give you a really, another example that um, I felt was really fascinating. There was a, um, a gastroenterologist I had a conversation with once, and I said to him, what's the weirdest... Um, a sort of a syndrome that you've ever encountered. And he said, well, there's this thing called rapid transit syndrome. I said, number one, I love that name. It's such a great name for a horrible malady. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, people that have rapid transit syndrome eat food and it comes out the other end within two hours. I said, what? He said, yeah, they can eat 10, 20,000 calories a day and be starving to death because they absorb nothing from the food that they eat because there's something wrong with their digestive system. And so it all comes out as quick as it goes in. So they're constantly starving, even though they eat more food than is humanly possible. And that is really truly the definition of being a narcissist, that you're starving all the time. So no matter how much admiration and how much power that somebody gives you, you need more, it comes out as quickly as it goes in because you, instead of a bowl, you have a colander. So everything just pours out as it comes in. And that kind of desperation is something that you and I could never imagine because we have a container. So if I show you that I love you, it sticks around for a while. Right. It doesn't stick around forever because human beings need a constant diet of love as along with food and everything else. But it sticks around long enough for you not to feel desperate all the time. Well, there's not a hole in the container either. That's right. right. So you can hold it for a while. So if you don't have a container, there's nothing for you to hold anything other than misery but you don't know that you're miserable because you're too busy compensating for it by looking for another source of food narcissism yeah it's a scary disorder especially because most of the people that have it are really successful not most the ones that are smart enough and talented enough really run the world and i'm not going to dispute that for a moment because oh, i don't think anybody I mean, will dispute that why would you want to be somebody famous or somebody uh um you know, politically powerful and all that, unless you have an inordinate need to, to control other people and feel a sense of power and admiration. But I also want you to make that differentiation that it's healthy to have a high sense of self-worth. Oh, sure. However, though. Yeah, I'm the so first we all, one. We all have a little bit of narcissism in us. Sure, super healthy. I mean, look, I encourage everybody to be centered within themselves, not self-centered. Self-centered is narcissistic. Centered within themselves. Centered within yourself means that you have a healthy connection to your intuition and yourself as a person and that you don't betray yourself and you do the best you can to respect the sacred uh, quality of your intuition and, and have a generally healthy sense of yourself. It doesn't mean you're walking around looking for people to confirm your wonderfulness all the time. 
It means that you feel a sense of sort of well-being, that neutrality we've talked about in, in other episodes, and that you can go to the joy and you can go to the pain mm-hmm. and you can live with it. But if you're a, a narcissist, for example, you don't go anywhere near the pain. Everything is projected outward. Oftentimes, a narcissistic parent has one kid that they hate and another kid that they idealize. And they pour all of their grandiosity into one kid and all of their self-hate into another. And, and the pain is somebody else's problem, not theirs. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I knew a father once who he fasted for a month before he conceived his first child because he, he believed that if he fasted, he would pure himself, purify himself. Now, again, I know this sounds crazy, but this guy was a super professional, well-known person in the community. He had a really good job. He was really good at what he did, but his grandiose self was pretty bizarre. So anyway, he conceives his first child, which turned out to be probably one of the most godlike children I've ever seen. See, then it worked. It worked to a degree, except that he just about destroyed his first child by uh, attempting to make that child a, a mini me. Second child in his fantasy he created was not even his own biological child. He was so delusional in this way that he accused the mom of having an affair and that the child came from a different uh, father, but he decided he would raise the kid anyway, just out of the kindness of his heart. But he was, he was not the golden child. He actually told his son that he wasn't his real son. Now, if you saw these two, the younger son and the dad together, you would think they had a cloning experiment. They looked so much alike and were so much alike. But the father was so cuckoo in his grandiosity and his negative, negativity. They actually told the second son that he wasn't his real son, which was insane. It hurt the, the younger kid so badly and the older kid for not ever being able to develop his own identity. And, you know... This guy lived a very, very professional life where he was quite successful. People really admired him and, and thought he was really good at what he did. And he was, excuse me, batshit crazy. That's how bad it can get with some people. The, la- the last few minutes, I just want to, uh, to cover the other couple of uh, personality disorders. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, which I have a little bit of, actually. And, 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 and I attributed it to being this... HSP, even though an HSP is not a personality disorder, but um, I have a little bit of that, you know, in terms of, of, of you know, the, the common ones, the, the, the not constantly hand washing, but the probably a little bit more than normal need to hand wash. Um, everything in the room needs to be in a certain place mm-hmm. all the time, you know, right. things that are, you know, probably a little bit more over than normal. But you know, Kim, um, first of all, you're, you don't have any uh, personality disorder traits at all. I wasn't going to say that I was fully OCD, but I have a little OCD in that Yes, way. but the, the reason for your particular, and this is just my uh, opinion, is that you grew up in such chaos and with violence that your need for order comes out of the chaos and it, the violence that you come from. It doesn't come from... Right, it's, sa- it, it's safe. It's a safety zone. Yeah, I mean, we come up with rituals in order to create a sense of, uh, of um, security. You know, it's very much like, like kids who uh, rock in a chair uh, in order to comfort themselves. It's not because, um, you know, they have a horrible disorder. It's because they're trying to soothe their nervous system mm-hmm. based on whatever it is that's making them feel out of control. So I just want to reassure you that, yeah, okay, you know, so you need order, right? <laughs> you come by it quite honestly. And I need clean hands. And you need clean, well, yeah, I do too, everybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> so uh, it's really important to distinguish between something that's a type of brokenness versus a symptom that may develop as a result of trauma. Right, and I was being a little facetious, but that's why I wanted you to, to, yeah. to talk about a little bit because yeah. I mean this when we talk about OCD I mean this is really overboard stuff uh-huh. that affects your life in a negative way yes yeah see washing my hands and having pillows in the right place and stuff right. like that doesn't affect my life in a negative uh-huh. way so yeah yes but these are you know, people that have the OCD disorder yeah I mean have it's a hard really severe. have a hard time being productive in life I've met way. people when I worked in the psychiatric ward who had uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder and just walking out of a room would take 15 minutes of having to go walk around in circles and touch this and that. And 
you know, all these incredible rituals. And even then when they walked through the door, they had to go back and do it again. So it can be so bad that you can, that you really can't function. Paranoid personality disorder. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a tough one also because um, it's not unusual at all for someone who's narcissistic to be incredibly paranoid. Again, like former president, you know, he didn't trust anybody and was suspicious of everyone's motives until they proved to him that they were his minion. And, you know, that's part of the paranoia of uh, knowing that nobody really cares about you and nobody really loves you. But you can't say that out loud because it would not be a conscious recognition. Schizoid? You know, schizoid is, is somebody that used to be called eccentric. Right. You know? <laughs> right. We've, we found a way to pathologi- pathologize eccentricity. Uh, yeah, and, that was, and now it's not even a bad thing to be eccentric. Right. But generally speaking, if it's a personality disorder, it's so severe that you can't really function normally. Do you have an example of, of that at all? Well, again, I don't work with people that have these kinds of disorders, so, uh, and I never have. And someone like that you would never meet anyway because usually they're holed up somewhere in isolation in their own delusional world. Um, and, and the last one is a schizotypal? Schizotypal. You know, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that I would necessarily call it a, a personality disorder because usually it's a combination of um, really severe eccentricity mixed with really strong emotional difficulty. Yeah, when I was going through the, this list of ten, I, I started getting this idea that it that they had gotten to cahoots with the the uh, big pharma companies, <laughs> because every it, it seems like everything has to have a name, everything yes. has to have a diagnosis, and everything has to have a drug to go with that diagnosis. Right. Well, and the person and the uh, um, insurance industry, uh, if you take an insurance for mental health issues, you have to come up with a diagnosis, um, and. Um, you know, the church companies discriminate hugely against mental health treatment. Um, and so the, the more severe the diagnosis, the more likely it is they're going to reimburse for whatever charges you uh, accrue. I don't ever take insurance, so I, I disconnected myself from that industry 30 years ago because it was so, uh, in my mind, awful. But, you know, a lot of times it's the only way people can afford therapy. And again, you know, we talked earlier about that, that there's probably some proof in the pudding that these are genetic traits that uh-huh. passed down in DNA. Yes. Again, these personality disorders aren't typically scientifically proven. They're, they're anecdotal right. out there. Um, so if anybody's going to go to 23andMe or uh, any of those and try and get uh, tested for any of these personality disorders, it's not going to matter. No, I mean, we do, we're I think I'm an, I think I'm a narcissist. I'm going to get tested for it. Well, first of all, if you thought that, you wouldn't get tested for it because <laughs> you true. wouldn't think it in the first place. <laughs> right. <laughs> but my partner told me I'm a narcissist. Right. But, it, but if your partner told you you were, you would just get really mad at your partner and say, no, that's what you are. I mean, I, again, there was a fellow who came to see me. Can I, uh, I just want to tell you one last quick story. He came to see me after seeing seven or eight other psychologists and... Um, uh, was really disappointed. That in should the, be a disorder in its own right well, there. Uh, he was really disappointed in the reaction he got because nobody could figure out what was wrong with his wife. And that's why he was going to therapy, was to figure out what was wrong with her. So he would come in and present the situation and so on and so forth, and he wouldn't get the reaction that she was the problem. So I gave him a book about narcissism, and, and I was curious about what he would think when he read the book. So he came back the next week and he told me that I was the most competent genius therapist he'd ever met. Because every single thing he read in this book describes his, his wife. wife perfectly. Yeah. And the sad part was when I met his wife, it was actually a book about him. Right. But he couldn't see any of it and was projecting it all into his wife, who's his wife's mother was, you know, the husband's uh, uh, doppelganger. She was as bad as he was from a personality stamp, disorder standpoint. And so that's why she got together with this guy in the first place, because he made sense to her. And he was so happy when he left her with a... With a, a a pure diagnosis of what was wrong with his wife, and none of nothing was wrong with his wife, other than the fact that she chose, you know, to be with somebody who's that disordered. I know we uh, had a little fun with some of this, but yeah. you know, in, in all seriousness, I mean, these ten diagnoses do exist. Yes, 
people in the world do suffer from them. People in the world also have to be victims to those people that suffer from this. Yes. So it is, it is serious, but I do hope our audience um, got a better understanding of the personality disorders that are out there, which ones are most common, um, some of the signs that exhibit those personality disorders and, and potentially how to deal with them. They'll completely come up again in a lot of our subject matter as uh, we kind of move through uh, debunking some of the, the common psychological myths and, and talking about some of the other ones that are, are more prevalent prevalent that are affecting us on a daily basis. So Dana, thanks again for your expert input on this today. And uh, I'm sure we'll circle back and talk about it again sometime soon. You know, Kim, you're quite welcome. And I just want to remind everyone that if anybody has any questions about this episode, personality disorders, or anything else that have that has come up, we really welcome uh, questions, feedback. Don't forget, uh, fearmeoutpodcast.com. No, fearmeoutpodcast. Yeah. Fear gmail.com. Gmail.com. Sorry. Or, um, or fear me out on Instagram. You can also uh, direct message us on that. Right. And uh, if you want to give us crap about our politics, uh, you can keep that to yourself. At this <laughs> no, point. you can but, send it uh, to me. I don't mind. You can send it. You can send it, Dana. I'll have, make sure he dr- a, directly responds to I, you. I'm hearty about my uh, political affiliations. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.